This is The Lap with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're talking about Lost in Translation and Romance. So, Helen, kick us off. Okay, I hope this isn't too long. I didn't do a prepared piece last week, so we're just getting the gist of this and how we're doing it. So I'll give it a go. So I'm going to talk about how uh, Lost in Translation is an anti-Orientalist film. And I'm going to kind of analyse Orientalism in relation to Romanticism. And this is really inspired by the writings of Todd McGowan. Okay. Orientalism romanticises the other. It tells us that he is undivided, a possessor of wisdom, a magical figure who can guide us towards the transcendent through mystical practices, whose works of art and exotic traditions can teach us of the secrets of the earth. But to be human is to be divided. Young, we are wrested from the mother's breast and develop a sense of lack. This lack generates frustration. Frustration leads us to speak and to think. To enter into speech and sense-making, we must forgo a wholeness that never really existed in the first place. We experience a cut at the heart of everything, the the disquiet of a chaosmos without meaning into which we are thrown without choice. To be human is, in the words of Elenka Zapancic, to embody the ticks and grimaces of the universe. We are the contingent gristle of the real. Orientalism, therefore, casts the other to the status of non-human. By essentializing him as a saintly figure, we in fact eradicate what is human within him. This is more than primitivizing the other, more than patronizing or infantilizing him. This is reducing him to an entirely different species. Alienation is a universal human phenomenon. We are branded by we are branded with unknowing, lack, and existential disquiet from our first word until our last. Capitalism, according to Tobin is an outgrowth of this so-called unnatural alienation. Haunted by the shadow of lack, we eternally seek lost objects that we fantasize can rid us of the feeling that we are missing something. But we never can. The lack is too essential. We try and fail to fill ourselves up with material things. The latest iPhone, the fastest car, the slickest designer trainers. Accumulation towards bad infinity, the landfill sites full of last year's fashions, the endless series on Jeff Bezos's bank balance, the ruination of this planet and the desperate lunge towards others. These are the fossilized remains of a libidinal investment in a system that doesn't work. The commodity is the emblem of capitalism, but the dynamic of lost objects can take many forms, including Orientalism and Romanticism. McGowan distinguishes between love and romance in his book Capitalism and Desire. Love is posited as a connection to the other that exists beyond reason. We love our parents despite the fact that they endlessly let us down. We love our partner despite them being lazier than we would like or that they don't wash as frequently as they should. As Zizek says, if you have to have reasons to love someone, you don't really love them. Love is entirely useless. Romance, however, is in a different mode, more aligned with the ideology of promise, characteristic of capital. The other is new ground to be conquered, rich with secrets and promise. They can gift us the experience of transcendence. They can improve our lot and fill the void. When we romanticize the other, we reduce them to the commodity form. This is a quest for possession. Orientalism, like romance and capitalism, is about conquering places new, rich with secrets and promise, discovering new ideas, insights and truths that improve our lot and fill the void. In many works of fiction and frequently throughout history, the Westerner has looked to the Orient for the promise of transcendence in the mode of El Dorado. But in Lost in Translation, we are offered nothing. When offered the grand text of Tokyo, we search for meaning, but we are at a loss when we try to translate this great empire of signs. There is no meaning to be carried across to us, no digestible truth that will offer us access to the divine. All we see are neon lights and plasticky trinkets, and quite often the face of an American movie star peddling whiskey from a giant billboard in the sky. When Charlotte visits visits a Buddhist temple, she later reports during a phone call that she quote-unquote felt nothing. The food she and Bob order is bland and underwhelming. There is no mystical insight to be learned in Japan. All we are left with are meaningless absurdities, a thousand business cards that will end up in a dustbin, eight-bit video games, mumbled karaoke and sexual misunderstandings. But if these practices are meaningless to Bob and uh, Charlotte, they are also meaningless for the Japanese. When Charlotte asks Bob why they switch the L's and R's around, for example, Bob says, 
for yucks, just to mix it up. They have to amuse themselves because we're not making them laugh. In the words of Hegel, the mysteries of the Egyptians were mysteries to the Egyptians themselves. In this era of offence, essentialism and obsession with identity, I think we need to return to Hegel in order to understand that this fetishization of the other, and often even of ourselves in return for a temporary boost in our standing under capital, is precisely what is racist. To be human is to be divided, to be messy, to be lacking, to be complicated, and to not have to be very special at all. There is a secret, though, within the film that is perhaps sacred and sublime, because we can never we will never and can never know the truth of it. It will always be hidden in the network of the film and its resistance to ever possibly being deciphered. I didn't make sense there. I can't read what I said. <laughs> Perhaps we can talk about this secret a little bit more during the course of our conversation. All right. Nina, you're up. Yes. Okay. So I have a shorter initial response um, to the film and I'll I'll start by reading some of it. I might extemporize a bit. So. I wrote, it's interesting to note how pre-internet this film is. Um, I think it's from 2009. The internet obviously existed then, but it's not very dominant in the film. There are faxes and mobile phones, but they are incidental to life as such. They do not dominate it or even comprise it. Life here is still lived at the level of experience. And when characters are bored or listless, they turn to the television only to watch it ironically, uncomprehendingly, or very briefly before switching it off. Characters are insomniac, bored, and listless. In this sense, then, the characters are perfectly Heideggerian subjects. Their tools do not work to distract them, though they are perhaps not exactly broken either. After all, we are at the Hyatt in Tokyo, and everything's extremely fancy. In a text entitled Dialogue on Language Between a Japanese and an Inquirer, which Heidegger wrote in 1959 and which appears in the text, The Collection on the Way to Language. This dialogue is a fictional reconstruction of an actual meeting that Heidegger had with Tezuko Tomio, who is a Japanese scholar of German literature, who visited Heidegger in Freiburg in 1954. So Heidegger basically recreates this dialogue, this actual dialogue, as a sort of fictional reconstruction. In this dialogue, Heidegger says the following. The name aesthetics and what it names grow out of European thinking, out of philosophy. Consequently, aesthetic consideration must ultimately remain alien to East Asian thinking. In response, later in the dialogue, Tomio says the following. Thus, we wanted to know, in fact, only how European aesthetics might be suitable to give a higher clarity to what endows our art and poetry with their nature. Heidegger says, and that would be, Japanese responds, it's called Japanese in the dialogue, although it's Tomio. And we have for it the name I mentioned earlier, Iki. I don't know if you how to pronounce this, it's I-K-I. And this is a Japanese word that refers to a particular kind of stylish but kind of underplayed um, aesthetic. Um, and it's not very easily translated. Um, it's a very an idea of style and an understatement as far as I can make sense of it. My question really is to do with whether lost in translation, which is obviously in some ways presenting Japan as a kind of alien um, country, country and I agree with Helen that it doesn't provide any answers neither for the visitors in their listless uh, richness or the Japanese uh, themselves either um, whether kind of lost in translation is sort of recreating um, the same sense of incommensurability that is present in this d- discussion this dialogue of aesthetics between Heidegger and Tomio and how this might relate then to the question of the kind of global in terms of the kind of um, one of the other things they're discussing in the dialogue is this kind of spreading of the kind of the Western, uh, the negative aspect of the West, let's say, across the globe. You know, whether we, we talk about that in terms of capitalism is not a particularly Heideggerian term, but nevertheless, this idea of technology, um, clearly Jap- Japan then and, and now is a very, uh, you know, technologized country. 
um, and we can see all the other different toys and different kind of um, machines that are at work from cameras to karaoke to uh, game machines and and so on um you know whether this uh whether there is any form of kind of resistance let's say in this kind of incompleteness or this incommensurability and on the, the the point about perhaps the the heideggerian um categories which are very very central to his work in in uh, being in time um particularly boredom but also insomnia these are very blunshotty and heideggerian categories and it's in boredom that heidegger says that we in radical boredom let's say which is when we are no longer distractible by specific things but we enter into a state of pure boredom like we're bored with the world and heidegger says it's in this state of radical boredom that we understand on some level our kind of deep openness to possibility you know that actually boredom is very instructive there's something very interesting about boredom at another level because it it demonstrates to us that in a way we are capable of almost choosing anything to do um because we're in this kind of emptied out state and i think the character's um, enter into this state of, of listlessness. They have this kind of, um, incomplete relation as all relations are. Um, it's a very kind of asymmetrical relation in terms of height and age. Um, even though they're both, uh, Westerners, um, or both, uh, American. Um, and yeah, I suppose that kind of, um, you know, on one level, we can see this film as quite a sort of hipster film, right? They, I, you know, I don't particularly like this film. I never liked it when it came out. I found it kind of obnoxious in that kind of like almost vice-like way. You know, this idea of the kind of, um, you know, her husband, Charlotte's husband is something like a vice photographer. He's like that kind of character, which is very of that age of the some 90s and 2000s. And the, the kind of worlds of fashion and this kind of... Um, you know, this studied, uh, studied indifference to things in a certain way. And then the, the, the way it's filmed as well is filmed relatively cheaply, but it, it, it still kind of has this, uh, you know, um, yeah, fashiony, mm, could care less, um, atmosphere. But I think by reading it in term through these kind of Grundstimmung, as Heidegger would say, like these grounding moods, like boredom and anxiety and insomnia, all of which reveal these kind of deeper, um, truths of our, human condition you know the fact that the possibilities are presented to us and we want to flee from them you know and perhaps romance is precisely the place where we would flee um from these kind of terrible um burdensome uh anxiety inducing questions you know the fact that we don't know what we're doing as charlotte says i don't know what i'm doing you know i don't know what i want from life does it get easier you know she's struggling with her kind of uh, the meaninglessness the nothingness of her of her own existence um yeah leave it there cool all right so now it's time for me lost in translation initially draws us to the ways in which our american travelers find japan too foreign bill murray's character struggles through filming an advertisement for whiskey because he can't understand the director and his translator only gives him a fraction of what's being said but under the surface the real problem with japan isn't that it's different it's that it's the same Murray does a photo shoot, and while he can barely comprehend the photographer, it's clear that the photographer just wants him to do poses out of famous movies. You know 007? It's bad enough that Murray has to do this crap in America, but now he has to do it while missing every other word. Scarlett Johansson's character asks Murray what he's doing in Japan. He tells her he's getting paid $2 million to endorse a whiskey when he could be doing a play somewhere. The play could be anywhere, really. The problem isn't Japan, it's what Murray is in Japan to do. And meanwhile, both Murray and Johansson are stuck in marriages that make them feel extraneous. Johansson's husband brings her along, but never spends any time with her. When she tries to go places with him, he lets her along reluctantly. And Murray? He tells Johansson that his wife doesn't need him, his kids don't need him, he's just in the way. These people feel stuck, and they want an adventure. But Japan isn't giving them anything different. It's just giving them a more challenging version of the same old thing. Murray's wife sends him carpet samples in the mail, for Christ's sake. Of course, once Murray and Johansson find each other, they give each other a way out. When they're together, Japan suddenly becomes romantic. After one exciting night out with Johansson, Murray tells his wife he'd like to start eating Japanese food. We are offered romance as a dynamic, exciting alternative to the drudgery of work. It's an offer that has its appeal even for rich and famous actors who find themselves stuck making whiskey commercials. 
But if we enter relationships principally because they're exciting and new, they lose their luster once they get stale. Aristotle makes a distinction between leisure and amusement. For him, leisure is time available for activity that has intrinsic value. We use our leisure to do the things we believe really matter for their own sake. Amusement, on the other hand, is a way of conserving and restoring energy. It's a way of preparing to return to work, and therefore it is instrumentalized in the service of work. Sometimes we go into relationships because of their intrinsic value, and other times we go into relationships as a way of making the rest of our lives bearable. Very often a romance is an escape from an intolerable situation, and when a relationship is used for that purpose, it becomes a new version of the prison from which we hope to be liberated. But it's not just relationships. How many narratives are written about kids from small towns who get romantic ideas in their heads about big cities, fancy universities, and high-powered careers? Often we get stuck oscillating between two romances. The more frustrated we are with our relationships, the more we invest in narratives about careers and places, and the more frustrated we are with our career and our location, the more we invest in romantic relationships. As soon as we begin to escape from one romance, we are pulled into the other. We drift between dreams, never touching earth. Lacking meaningful social roles, we fill the void with relationships. Lacking meaningful relationships, we fill the void with roles. And so even Murray, a man who can make millions of dollars in one measly little trip to Japan, can't find the time or energy to do his play. All the money in the world can't buy leisure if we can't tell the difference between leisure and amusement. In practice, how can you tell? What's the difference between a relationship that really matters and one that is all about filling a void? Is there a difference in the first place? Or is that just another story we tell ourselves to justify doing the same old thing? All relationships surely are a way of filling in the lack. But some of them help us find ways to do things that are really meaningful, and some of them keep us chasing our tails. To judge which is which, in real time, while in the thick of the emotions which grip us, that requires wisdom which for many of us will only come through hard experience. Are Murray and Johansson's characters wise enough to get it right this time, or are they making the same mistakes they made with their spouses? Forget about what Murray says to Johansson at the end. That's the real mystery at the heart of the film. It's hilarious. I was just going to say that mention. That's what I was getting at at the end with my the paragraph at the end of the, the throwaway comment about the secret at the end where they he whispers and you never can know what he said. And it's the fact that, yeah, you're never, ever going to be able to know. Maybe the actors don't even know. Maybe it was nothing. Maybe it's just moving his mouth that maybe is the only thing that gives it some, like... I, I did look up all of the theories. There are lots of theories oh, yeah. about it. Um, I, maybe Benjamin read those too. Um, it's even on the Amazon. You know, if you watch on Amazon Prime, they have these little trivia down the side, yeah, which are often yeah. like really distracting when you pause the thing. Um and, and it suggests that perhaps he says, I mean, not that it matters, in fact, and perhaps we shouldn't even speculate on what it is, but according, people have slowed down the footage and, you know, done fine work on the audio and that, you know, all of this kind of very forensic, granular sort of attention to detail. And the idea is that he says something like, next time you see that man, tell him the truth or something like this. That's one theory, as in about her husband, as in to say, like, maybe it's not working. Mm. But I'm sorry, I've, I've been... No, but it's, it's just interesting. There we go. Everybody gets a huge amount of enjoyment out of researching it, fiddling around with the footage, trying to discover... Because that's yeah. all there is. <laughs> the pursuit, of the, the, pursuit the, of the secret rather than discovering it. There is another secret, isn't there? When she goes on the train and she ties the secret around the tree because that's a, another gesture. So I mm-hmm. think there's that secret too. Um, yeah. It's crazy to think she's like... She's probably about 18 years old at the time of filming. Um, and obviously, you know, you were referring a little bit, uh, Nina, to the sort of aesthetics and there's also the the um, the kind of world that these characters are moving, which is obviously the world that Sophia Coppola knows really well, sort of the bohemian artistic elite. And you know, I've often found that, like, we're strangely, like, like the wealthier the person sometimes or the more they are within that world like the strain the the less um you, the less traditionally conservative as in uh, often people i you know i've come across from that background get married really early or have kids really early or something you know so uh it's maybe not that strange but to me, I was like, she's 18 and married what the hell? Although she maybe is playing somebody a bit older. But. I think she just finished yeah. a philosophy degree, so she, she might be more yeah. like 22, but still 22, yeah. quite early. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, it's, I have to say, it is my fav- favourite of Sofia Coppola's films. Even though, yeah, I'm not like, it's not, it's not one of my favourite films. Um, I think, uh, yes. But I think it's down to the dynamic of uh, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson, which I'm guessing there's a lot of improvisations. Did you guys watch On the Rocks, the latest film? I haven't seen that yet. By Sofia Coppola with um, Bill Murray and Rashida Jones. And the dynamic between that pair is not the same. Um, but yeah, I, I like, maybe we should dive into discussing some of the stuff that you were saying, Nina, about, you know, questions of like translation and the potential for universality at all. And yeah, because obviously translation is a big theme in this movie. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think in the kind of Heidegger dialogue, they're talking about the same thing in a way. That's, you know, that's kind of what I was trying to say, like about the the possibility or impossibility or the incommensurability about trying to imp- impose these kind of categories or concepts onto different frameworks, right? So the the, the Western category of aesthetics, you know, and the, the film is also about judgment. I mean, Scarlett Johansson says, you know, oh, my boyfriend thinks I'm really snooty, you know, like I'm too judgmental. She's, she is, she says, I'm mean to um, Bill Murray's character. She uh, obviously is laughing at the, the blonde woman who's 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 portraying the, you know, this sort of airhead actress, you know, very obviously um, playing that kind of role. And so and, and, you know, Scarlett Johansson sort of dresses down, you know, she, she doesn't feel the need to kind of um, parade her her figure. Although there's an extremely gratuitous shot at the beginning of, of Scarlett Johansson with her sort of see through peach pants on the bed. Um which I think probably seemingly every director who ever directs Scarlett Johansson has to have some gratuitous shot of her, um, you know, think of the Woody Allen film and, and many others, you know, it's a kind of somehow that people feel compelled to do this to her, um, r- regardless of whether they're men or women, <laughs> I suppose. And, <laughs> That's very true. Um, so, but, you know, you, she's a kind of, just like in Ghost World, you know, she's just like an, a more indie character in a certain mm-hmm. way. You know, she doesn't need to kind of be, uh, a normie, a normie girl, a woman, should say, and yeah, and so that yeah, so that question of judgment then is the question of aesthetics. Really, it's like you know, how can we say that one thing is better than another in the first place? What does it mean to to even discriminate or differentiate between something, um, whether we're talking about works of art or or, or people or anything else? Um, it's a very very basic um, form of judgment, and as opposed to Perhaps this, you know, what the um, the Japanese philosopher is saying to Heidegger in the dialogue is that there's something, um, well, perhaps also unstoppable about the Western categories. Like, you know, and I think this film is also about that, as, as, as others have already said, like uh, Benjamin in particular, the unstoppability of Western consumer capitalism, you know, that it that it's it's absolutely there. You know, there isn't this mystery, you know, the temple doesn't provide her with a revelation. But then again, nor does the Western self-help, you know, find your own direction CD either. You know, both of these induce a sense of uh, nullity um, in her being. And, you know, so I suppose it's, it's you know, the mystery, it, to say that there is a mystery left, um, does it still mean the same thing? Is it still Orientalist to say that, there, are, there's mis- there might be mystery left in the in the globe, or has capital chased to the furthest corners, such that there is no mystery anywhere. Um, you know, such that perhaps we can, can only find it in our relation to the enigma of the other, which would be perhaps the romance idea. Um, but the romance itself is also another distraction potentially. I think that a lot of the remaining mystery is a mystery about the forgotten past. So. It- when people think about what might be mysterious about Japan or, or Asia, they think about ancient Japan or ancient Asia and the things that remain from that. And I think it's a kind of romantic quest for a pre-capitalism that we fetishize as a, as a way of kind of imagining some other way of living that's more natural or more right for us that we might some someday return to. And there's a, a lot of, in the kind of anarchist energy about trying to get back to some kind of village or tribe, some kind of setting like that. 
And I think that a lot of people, you, you think back to the 60s and, and the Beatles going to India and people taking these trips to India. I think what they're looking for is not so much a non-Western, although that might be how they phrase it, but a pre-capitalism. You know, just to, just to like uh, pick up on this idea of enigma and relating to, to translation. So translation is almost like the art of, it's a failure. It's like an art of failure as in um, it cannot, you know, so you have these things like Google Translate. It cannot be done because uh, it cannot be done through this robotic thing. You have to like hire somebody who's a specialist to translate a text or a novel because language itself is a failure. <laughs> so each language is a failure. So then we have to like carry across one failure to another failure. And so that does leave some kind of residue, even though the residue is maybe just all you get is um, a residue sensed through the process of the translation itself. And it's interesting because like translation, obviously from Latin means like carry across and metaphor in ancient Greek means carry across. So metaphor is like a more artistic way of conveying something when language fails. You know, you have to like turn to some other formulation of language and something supplementary to create imagery to carry across this kind of idea that can't be carried across otherwise and also like the film itself like there would be no film were it not for this joke of lost in translation so it's like the humor and the storyline that all the funny bits that we all remember like lit my stockings and the bit on the you know the cross trainer it's all about that failure so the, i guess what i'm trying to say in, in relation to translation is that the failure is the juice, basically. Mm. You know, so the enig- the failure generates the enigma or generates like, you know, if it wasn't for the failure, we wouldn't have art or that that film or the enjoyment of that film and we wouldn't have sort of... Yeah, I mean, every, everything comes from failure, maybe, in a sense, and translation is just emblematic of that. Yeah, I remember when I was an undergrad taking a, a trip to... Rome, uh, and I was American. I only just recently come over to Europe, and so when you're American and you grew up in Indiana and you come over to Europe, it's all very romantic because it's all so old. I, the thing that that kept sticking with me was just how old it was. And you know, in America, if you see something that's from before 1900, it's it's incredibly old. Uh, anything from before 1900 is incredibly old. And then you come to Europe and, and you find old things that are much older than that. And nobody cares, really. Nobody in Europe is all that bothered because Europe is full of old things. So I remember in Rome going to the Circus Maximus, right? The Circus Maximus is not really in the center of the forum where all of the uh, tourists tend to go. And it's not really up by the Vatican. It's just kind of there by itself. And it looks like a, a ripped up, torn apart. Uh, running course, you know, track or something. It it looks horrifying, really. But when I came there, because it, it's the Circus Maximus, uh, to me, it was just astounding. And you could just go and walk on it. And nobody cared. Nobody yeah. cared. There was nothing to stop you from going and walking on it. And uh, at that age, at that particular time, that had a great romance for me. I'm walking around the Circus Maximus. Wow, I'm I'm in something that is that is that old. And and yet, once that is something that you're around all the time, then it's just a junky old uh, running course. And that's how you, you start to think, well, how is it that all of this old stuff gets torn down? And you, know, you always hear these stories about people taking blocks and bricks from things and using them to make something else. Well, if you're around it for long enough, you go, well, really, that's just a useless pile of junk that's in the way. And so everything that's romantic depends upon your not having been exposed to it long enough. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that goes for people as well as you know uh, megaliths. Um, <laughs> I think I prefer megaliths these days. Um, <laughs> having grown up like around a lot of prehistory, you know, in in Wiltshire, where where I grew up, you know, with Avebury and Stonehenge and Long Barrows and Silbury Hill and these kind of very mysterious, actually, still, you know, like if there's the largest man man made mound, they just sort of spent years making a mound of earth for no reason like that anyone can understand why they did it and it's just this it's still there it's just like this massive pile of earth with grass on it 
<laughs> and it's it's wonderful, right? It's like you don't even need to take psychedelics to enjoy it, though. You know, you can do that too. Same as the Circus Maximus, I I, re- I recommend doing that. But um, you know, you do, can just stand there and sort of be overawed by this this pile of earth that a collective number of people, you know, were they even human in the sense that we understand today, right? But prehistorical people did this thing, you know, that would have required some form of language, some form of communication, Mm -hmm. presumably some form of shared understanding. You know, this is presumably before uh, relations of employment, as we we would would know them. You know, we assume some sort of community effort. No doubt probably children were involved. Um, and, And, yeah, there's something almost stupid about mystery in a way i think yeah. <laughs> like this it's sort of you know its absence of meaning is is stupefying and stupid in a certain way and yeah i because <laughs> this is a, just to pick up also i think you know about like the circus maximus thing and obviously you know, my intervention at the beginning is quite critical of romance but like we can't do without romance and almost like romance is inevitable because we are we overvalue things because we're speaking subjects. And so like people, people end up in psychoanalysis often because they've stopped desiring and like desire is really like what drives us. And obviously desire relies on some element of promise in the future. I guess when the psychoanalytic frame, it's just about whether you're being held hostage to that future or whether you can enjoy, um, enjoy yourself and continue to desire despite not having something and despite the knowledge that romance doesn't really the thing that you romanticize about will never actually bring you the thing that you fantasize it will because we're obviously always haunted by lack Lacan has this phrase um do not give way in terms of your desire which you know has a sort of ambivalent meaning to it which is both do not um let your desire pass as in like yield to it on a road. If you have a road and you have a yield sign and you yield and it goes past it, don't don't give way to it. Don't let it pass you by, but also don't give way, don't give yourself over to it because that also, you know, is going to lead to sort of disappointment in, you know, going after some romantic object that then, you know, ends up uh, ends up failing you as well. And I guess it's sort of like, how do we manage <laughs> living in a world where we we need we need that kind of romantic element. We need future or promise. We need to invest, libidinally invest in things, but also in the knowledge that it can never really, maybe it's just, it's just um, lowering the stakes from sort of transcendent, this transcendent possibility of some promise or magical object or whatever to, yeah, it could be nice. <laughs> and also maybe um, turning our, our gaze from like some future romantic thing or past romantic thing to sort of being, you know, finding romance in in the here and now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of Heideggerian point here too, which is also to do with the project. You know, it's like we're futural beings. Um, we're projected into the world. We're sort of thrown into the world, but we also throw ourselves forward in terms of the project. And the project only makes sense in light of our finitude, which is our like our own most possibility, right? No one can die for you. Um, mm-hmm. So there's an interesting relation maybe between like death and language here. You know, and I, I think that kind of entry into language, you know, Chris Daver and others talk about, you know, before children speak, they become very sad, she says, you know, for like a few weeks before they enter into language, because it's it's almost like the animal recognition that you can no longer carry on playing, you know, that you can yeah. no longer remain this pre-linguistic subject. And that actually that children have this depression. I mean, I don't know how true it is. It sounds very poetic <laughs> and very... <laughs> I was going to say, there's, there's a phrase that I've always wanted to know who said it because mm. I have it in my head and I know I didn't make it up. And was it Chris Deva? The birth of the word was the death of the world. I don't know. That, that sounds very like... Yeah, I, 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 I'll, I'll research it for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, but, tr- I'm like a crap researcher, so I haven't found out. <laughs> I'm sure I can find it. I'm, I, I'm, I get Veronica, very Veronica Mars, like, you know, lady detective about these sorts of things. But... Um, no, but so, I mean, maybe there's this kind of question here about the, you know, the relationship of, of, of death and language. You know, Heidegger says, like, language is the house of being, right? So mm-hmm. that, you know, we dwell in language, you know, that we're kind of, and, you know, in a way he takes the age of the poets, the furthest you can possibly go. Like, poetry is that which kind of describes fundamental ontology, not describes is the wrong word, but it's it's the most, because it's language in its kind of most 
fundamental ontological um, expression. And, you know, I suppose then in this film, maybe romance also staves off the possibility of death as well, like the inevitability of those things. So, you know, the fatalism of marriage and children, they have a discussion about that too. You know, is it always this hard? You know, oh, having children changes everything. Oh, it's, you know, but they're both kind of um, stuck too. You know, so that in a way, those things are not promised. Those are not projects. I mean, they, they probably are inevitable for most people, but they're not regarded as projects in this film. And so, um, yeah, there's a kind of maybe this question of like whether romance staves off death sometime, somehow or it presents us with the fantasy that we are not going to die. Because if you're actually committed to something, if you're committed to someone, you know, the, the marriage vows in Christianity are till death do us part. It couldn't be more obvious what the, the vow is saying to you. It's like, this is what commitment means. I mean, seriously, you know, that it's it, to take that seriously is to say, I will, I will be with this person until one or both of us are dead, you know, and, and it's so to avoid that seriousness, you know, to romance seems to present, and maybe the whole film is romantic in the negative sense. Like it's also a distraction too. Yeah. And I definitely, I think that's really true about, you know, that even if in, I, I mean, I, I think that, um, I personally think the aesthetic should always is always revelatory of the actual fundamental philosophy of a of a work, you know. And obviously, so we have this um, anti orientalist aspect and anti romantic side of it. But yeah, the aesthetics, as you say, has very sort of music video y, you know, whatever ethereal Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, and 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 that it's not the aesthetic as such, but the orientation that leads to the aesthetic that is the thing, and that um, any kind of orientation can take any kind of form. So that yeah, even though on on a certain level it might be anti-romantic, but there is there is sort of this sort of very peachy bottomed, <laughs> you know. Also, the funny thing as well is like she, um, I find with with Scully Hans, um, not Scully, Sophia Coppola's films, it's like she's sort of disenchant. It's almost a disenchantment of this kind of rock and roll world in which she grew up. This sort of elite, jet setty, artistic bohemian world, and it's very depressed. It's revealed to be very depressing and tragic you know, which it absolutely probably is. I think somewhere is like a very, very depressing film. But at the same time, it has a certain enchantment to it. Like in, in somewhere, he's sort of staying at the Chateau Marmont. And, you know, we all sort of, you know, I think I was, you know, in my early teens when this film came out, you know, you sort of fantasize about being this sort of figure in a hoo, 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 hoo. You know, it, it does it does have a sort of very, um, just maybe even just in terms of the content, in terms of the types of characters, in terms of that world, it has a romanticism to it, despite it being, you know, it kind of makes me think of sort of 19th century, you know, <laughs> women on the, you know, we'd all love to be that sort of like, oh, help me, please, <laughs> in a certain way. Um, but yeah, I don't know, like, Nina, in terms of like the romance thing and marriage, I, as a, as a woman, have you ever found, do you find yourself being like, overly romanticized to the point where you're like no I, I just actually want to have like a basic connection with somebody <laughs> I don't know you mean do, do people do people project their fantasies onto me or yeah I mean I don't know if it's like a woman versus man I mean I'm like I'm really not I'm actually not into this sort of like gender difference things except for like occasionally when it's just like interesting to converse about it but like sometimes I do sort of find like um you know, when you talk about marriage, and I'm like, yeah, for fuck's sake, to death do you part? Yeah, absolutely. Life's shit, life's tough, get on with it. And then that sometimes that there's a sort of resistance I find on the part of like, maybe maybe it's the guys that I attract to the guys I've been with, where it's like, I feel like I have to be this sort of romanticised figure. And I'm like, well, I'm just not, sorry. <laughs> well, maybe, I don't know, maybe a little bit, but yeah. I Yeah, I don't know. I mean, philosophers um, (laughs) tend not to get married. Like Nietzsche makes a joke about this in The Genealogy of Morality. You know, and he says that the only one he does is Socrates. And it's ironic because his wife is so annoying that he has to spend all his time talking to young men. So (laughs) there's... (laughs) So, but... I think I think there is genuinely something to this, which is to say, if you overthink the the concept of the contract, if you mm-hmm. actually think about what commitment means, you understand yeah. its seriousness in such a sort of intense way that you you basically don't want to do it. You know that there's something kind of you know because it almost means too much. You know, is and that course, why we have to go on? Sorry, go for it. I was going to say, is that why we have where people have to spend outrageous amounts of money and wear ridiculous clothes and get ridiculously blind drunk on the day? But this is also a problem because it's also to, that romanticizes the day. 
right? Yeah. So the, 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 the marriage is not the romance of the wedding, you know, and mm-hmm. the wedding is always for everyone else. This is the other thing yeah. that people don't understand. The wedding is a public declaration to say, uh, you hold me to account because I've publicly told you that this is my commitment, what my commitment look like, looks like. It's not a party for the bride and groom. In, in fact, if anything, the wedding should be horrible for the bride and groom, you know, because of the, the level of seriousness at which you're publicly communicating to the community your intent, mm-hmm. you know, and to say, this is what I want you to hold me to. Mm-hmm. But that's, of course, not really how most people think of weddings. I know, I know. Maybe, <laughs> but maybe it's because the scene in the yeah. film with the wedding, she sees the seriousness of the wedding ceremony, actually, when she goes somewhere else in town and she sees the mm-hmm. bride and she's visibly moved. She seems shocked by this scene, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and also when you when you talk about the sort of till death do you part in relation to her on my happy marriage herself mm. it's quite a thought that at, say, 22, yes. <laughs> and if, if, if marriage does have that, you know, symbolic value than than breaking the vows and, and divorcing and stuff is carries a huge weight as well a sort of um infinite weight forever yeah. weight yeah absolutely yeah although I, I think that ultimately you can't really avoid it yeah because even if you don't marry a person you know, what do philosophers and academics do well they marry a discipline right and the discipline becomes the the object of romantic attachment yeah, you know, thinking about political theorists, most political theorists have, through their politics, a kind of romantic relationship with something external across which they have some kind of language barrier. So if you're a historian of political thought, and you're interested in medieval or, or Roman or Greek or Italian Renaissance or uh, early modern English political thought, whatever it is, there tends to be a deeply romantic attachment to that period and this thought that the concepts of that period are in some way better or more interesting or more valuable than what is around, right? And if you're an English uh, Anglophone political theorist and you study the Germans or the French, you go, well, this other other European culture is the romantic culture that has all the good political concepts and all the good political theory that we don't have. Right. And even if you're someone who is, say, just a journalist who writes about current events, uh, then your romance is is about the structure that you are commenting on that you are never quite a part of, but are always uh, interfacing with to share with others. But here's where I think philosophers are, are, are annoying once again. And this puts them in this kind of antagonistic relationship also with psychoanalysis, which, you know, Lacan says philosophy and psychoanalysis are always like um, dry humping each other or, you know, rubbing up against one another. But philosophy is. Is, is literally married to the nothing because philosophy mm-hmm. is completely empty. You know, philosophy mm-hmm. has no specific love of, of anything, any period, any, dis- you know, it's a kind of either an er discipline or a kind of completely broken, dis- you know, it's not a discipline at all in a, in, a, in a very real way. So I think, but I love this idea of like being married to the nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. You know, it's like if philosophy takes place in the realm of the universal, as we were saying last time, the realm of the universal is the realm of the lack. Yeah. Then, yeah. But it's what about, you know, like this ultimate concern, you know, does, does ultimate concern have like a different texture to be like, you know, in the throes of a romance, but rather like committing yourself to something, you know, because obviously like, sublim- like art is about sublimation, you know, art is creating something out of, you know, some other issue and you know we can we can create things out of turmoil by some you know through sublimation and sort of ultimate concern is about committing yourself to something you know and this is why I kind of like maybe I'm like romantic about marriage but like I kind of like this idea of marriage because it's like no you're just arbitrarily committing but you're like it's fucking ridiculous it's absolutely fucking ridiculous really but you're, you're choosing to commit in the face of the absurd infinity mm-hmm. and it could be anyone but this is why, I mean, arranged marriages actually have much lower divorce rates than marriages where people choose each other. You could yeah. say there are cultural reasons for that. But there's also something incredibly interesting about that mm-hmm. in the sense that it reveals that actually other people choosing somebody for you for whatever set of reasons um, doesn't necessarily preclude you learning how to love somebody. And that mm-hmm. there's a real contingency there. Yeah. Do you know, okay, this is like, this is this reactionary, um, what do you call it, like, um, where, <laughs> like gender, gender stuff. So when I was at school, everybody used to read this book called The Rules. Um, and The Rules is basically like about how to behave 
uh, it was like published in the 90s and it's about basically like some women in New York were like women are giving too much of themselves and women need to understand the value and they need to enact these certain rules to um, instigate certain like their value towards the man and they can't just take for whatever, whatever, whatever. Obviously, the thing is that they're really it's like one of these really convenient things where it's basically impossible. And it's obviously it's totally utilitarian, totally well, not transactional, but totally in a way transactional, because obviously like love transcends this and if you love somebody well then fucked because you know if you actually want to be with them then you can't just like I'm going to walk away unless you you know so it doesn't really work but the interesting thing is one of the rules is if the man has not proposed to you within a year you leave because I think it's because even though it's not written in the rules these are etched in my mind from when I was like 15 years old and that's obviously bullshit but anyway um is that you you fall in love with somebody you do fall in love and like love is completely beyond reason <laughs> like it's completely beyond your best interest and once once you're in love like what are you gonna do you know and I, I don't know after a year mark it's very hard to just be like goodbye <laughs> <laughs> sure but I mean maybe there is something to that in the sense that it's I mean if you are in love and if you're with someone for a year why why aren't you with them for 50 years it's like exactly why wouldn't you marry them actually yeah yeah I know I know exactly but yeah, I don't know. I just maybe I'm too maybe I'm too much against romance. But I don't know. I just I think that like the real challenge is finding a sort of romance, like a healthier romance commitment, or yeah, ultimate concern, like throwing yourself into something, despite the fact that there's no guarantee that it'll provide any kind of real transcendent enchantment or magical thing on the horizon. Um, yeah. I mean, but I think, you know, romance, when we, when you think about it historically in terms of things like courtly love, you know, these mm-hmm. are massively at a distance. You know, the reason why you can sustain fantasy is because you're not in proximity to somebody. Yes. So, <laughs> I mean, that's what a fantasy, you know, and even if, you know, that's why Scarlett Johansson and, and mm-hmm. Bill Murray, you know, can't have sex. You know, exactly. that's why their characters can't do that because it would destroy the, 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 the the lack of proximity the courtly these the slightly yeah. mysterious courtly aspect of their relationship um you know and that's sort of broken a little bit when she gets upset because he has sex with the jazz singer or whatever you know because it presents this other option you know and she's clearly why did you choose her not me in a way um but i th- so i think that's overplayed that scene it could have been much left much more ambiguous you know is this mm-hmm. a friendship is this you know something else um but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think the enchantment, if you're with somebody in a very everyday way, would be something like them giving you the slightly nicer looking portion of the food that you make or something. <laughs> you know, it would, but it would, it would yeah. really be these incredibly micro details mm-hmm. of the mon- of mundanity itself, yeah. you know, because how to re-enchant, if, you, if you're interested in that, or, it, you know, how to enchant the, the everyday and the quotidian. Uh, the quotidian is by these incredibly tiny tiny things yeah you know and i mean we we actually made a movie about the theme of courtly love set in, in sort of a present day environment just because yeah it's like the, how do you generate desire when um when we like desire is not is is not real because humans aren't real and it has to be generated <laughs> and it's almost like you know that like the, this is maybe the the an idea that i was having with this idea of the secret and the, the mysteries of the Egyptians, the, the mysteries of the Egyptians themselves, it's like all there is, as you say, with like these, maybe, you know, like the Japanese, like the the, the gardens, where they like rake the gardens of like the really tiny, beautiful portions. It's like, it's it's that that's creating the enchantment. There's no like enchantment held within the piece of sushi itself, but that whole ceremony of creating enchantment within life. Like that, you know, you, you can you can do these things to, to generate some form of it, but we, there's no there's no transcendent magic beyond that yeah there's there's relationships which work pragmatically after that transcendence is is put to one side uh, in part because they involve both both a possibility of a life which works but also moments that remind you of the romantic without getting you so caught up in it that you have to demand all of it all at once all over again yeah. This is why um Disha Fontese is never naked. <laughs> yes, anyway. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um I don't know, but it is it is because we do live in like a very utilitarian universe and maybe that's why I think, you know, a lot of us were kind of saying this in our 
intervention at the beginning, you know, trying to find, perpetually trying to find things that might offer some kind of secret. But yeah, I mean, maybe if, if we could, like the French are very good at this, <laughs> like enjoying enjoyment, like enjoyment is like, you know, the sort of painful pleasure of not having and then kind of like really enjoying that. You know, if you like really taste a piece of chocolate, you don't have to have like a huge, obviously there's loads of different reasons why people eat too much chocolate, you know, and I think that's just like the loss of being human is doing that. The more you don't have romance in the everyday, the Mm -hmm. more you need the big romance. Yeah, maybe that's it. And the the thing about the Anglosphere and and capitalism is that we don't have any romance in the everyday. So we Mm -hmm. build this, I think more and more, weight gets put on romantic relationships as the romance is stripped out of every other aspect of life. And so it it becomes hard to even think about marriage and relationships outside of this romance. And so when we think about something like arranged marriage, or we think about marriages that are done based on uh, economic factors, there's almost a, a revulsion in our society to these previously ubiquitous ideas of what marriage and relationships are about because we have we have nowhere else to put romance, really. A few of us get lucky and manage to have some kind of romantic entanglement with whatever it is that we do for a living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for most people, that, that that's not there. So the philosopher is free to not get married only because the philosopher is married to philosophy. Uh, but to the for nothing. most people, to the nothing. yeah, to, to the nothing, right? And but for for most people who don't have something that they are doing with their life that that has that pull, the only place for that energy to go is is in other people. And so we have this this culture around relationships, which is increasingly obsessive and controlling as people try to milk the romance out of the stuff. And the harder they try to grasp it, the more it flees from them. And I think that's why we have so much frustration around relationships. And you turn on a pop radio station, and it's just miserable songs about relationship failure. Uh, and that's really the, insofar as we have a universal that's commercial, mm-hmm. that's the universal that's commercial because that's the experience which is most common. The the most intense experience which most people in uh, a heavily capitalist society have is the experience of trying to find the romance that's missing in their life in a person and failing to do that. You know, and I actually think it's the, it's the failed romance that's necessary in that age because the romance has to fail to sustain the fantasy that it could have worked if, if it had worked. So it can't work because it just doesn't. There's no transcendence. So you have to keep main, you have to keep shooting yourself in the foot and generating this illusion that there would have been a fantasy were you just contingently to have stumbled on the right one. And maybe that's what I was kind of saying about like right now. I just find it really annoying because I always feel like I'm in these romantic entanglements that I'm just like, for fuck's sake, you know, like just get on with it, you know, because it's almost like the, yeah, the, 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 the realm, it, ha- the ha- it has to be impossible. It just has to be, oh, you know, and, um, but, but what's the it in the get on with it? What is the it? Just like, just live together, work together, create something together, just like live your life, you know, and it's nice along the way, but it's always sort of like, oh, this is impossible. Oh, no, no, no. Like, I don't know, maybe I end up in these relationships. <laughs> maybe this is way too personal. I should be like, this is a philosophy podcast, sorry. But um, yeah, no, the, 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 but the point being is that like r- romance requires, so funny enough, this other film I'm working on is we've done a, a, a thing of like, it's, it's like Aladdin, but a Freudian Aladdin. And it's about the fact that the the, the, the insight is that the main character has to realise that he has to, his desire is to fail to sustain the fantasy, that there is a fantasy. Because if were he ever to get the fantasy, he'd realise it wouldn't work. So he has to st- sustain a fantasy to avoid the mundanity of every day, because then a, fant- a fantasy could still exist if it fails. But if it doesn't fail, as in if he gets the thing that he thinks will give him the fantasy he will also be disillusioned of the fantasy. So, yeah, just to back to Benjamin's point about, like, all this romance music that's, oh, it was so just in <laughs> It's like, that's what romance requires, is this sort of abject, constant impossibility and failure. But I think, you know, there's, there's something where we have to find a way of, like, sustaining desire, admitting that it's not going to work. But, yeah, that we, if we're caught up in the cycle of, 
of desiring a, a fantastical romantic possibility out there to distract ourselves from our everyday, it has to constantly keep failing because if we were to get it, it we would we would recognise that the fantasy was failing. So if we we still are engaged in this sort of romantic mode, it has to we either get it and we're melancholic or depressed, or we don't get it and we're like, oh, but at least it's imaginary still out there. We need a more even distribution of meaning. Yes. We need more things to have a little bit of meaning instead of one thing having all the meaning. That's that's what's going that's wrong. True. The that's more that true. The, the the more we squeeze meaning out of things, the more we have to concentrate it in one area, and then we become hyper dependent on this one thing, yeah. and that thing becomes a narcotic. I think there is yeah. this theology of the the one right in the contemporary mm-hmm. magic thing, but at the same time, that's sort of running alongside, of course, this absolutely exploit you know mutually self exploitative interchangeability of the kind of app type, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and, and people then trying to to the, the, yeah the polyamory move, yeah. Mm. But that's still putting all of the romance on relationships. It's just trying mm-hmm. to have multiple people supply to you what one person will not sustainably supply because you ask too much of them. Yeah, but yeah. I think the the app thing is you know it's it's kind of also like this idea that the worst thing in the world would be to catch feelings. You know, don't catch feelings. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what because you know caring about someone for who they are is is bad you know i mean there's something so kind of you know prophylactic at the level of emotionality like oh you can have sex which is obviously very intimate with somebody but you can't care about them as a person you know i mean yeah i i, I think you know i was making this point a few years ago and i don't know if it still stands but i think that like me too speaks to the fact that okay a lot of it is talking about historical rapes and historical how bad it was years ago whatever and how it's changed around. but I think people feel more traumatized around sex today and more you know because rape is sex without fantasy like sex requires fantasy because it's traumatic and if you're not engaged in the fantasy then it's profoundly horrifying and I think that like in this age like it's it's not a neutral subject like it's extremely complicated and when we like analyze what sex is in relation to the psyche and stuff it's like it's like a, it's like the confrontation with the void, and so as you say, like this sort of this world where it's all supposed to be fairer and nicer, and can I have your permission? And I think actually people are feeling more traumatized; they find it more tra- traumatic now. Though the past is not the solution either, you know. Yeah, and I think so. This I like Benjamin's idea of finding meaning in multiple different places. It's like you know when I was recovering from like being a horrible addict and being very sick. You know, I found I had to basically re-enchant the world for myself because the thing that I was I was depending on, in, you know, to sustain myself was obviously incredibly self-destructive and I couldn't go on like, without killing myself, basically. So I had to kind of reinsert desire back into the world at this kind of cosmic level. And I had to basically almost train myself into finding everything else interesting, everything else but this thing interesting. So it became this kind of... um you know, almost like adoration of nature in the first place, you know, this total kind of capitulation to the universe, almost like in this passive sense, you know, I would just kind of walk around for hours every day and just kind of be outside. And it was like outsideness that was sort of like pouring in and all, but I was just receptive to it. You know, it wasn't a kind of possessive relation. It wasn't a kind of infinite relation, you know, where, you know, when, if you're addicted, there's not enough of this substance in the world that, you know, that you could have you know it, it wouldn't matter if you had loads of it it still would never be enough because there's something infinite about that desire in a very negative way so yeah. to, to kind of reinsert meaning into everything you know and I, I kind of forced myself to to listen to people in a in an in a uh, a calmer way you know as before I probably would have been thinking can I have you know how can I parlay the situation into like a drinking situation or you know do you think this person might want to drink with me you know whatever so to to eliminate that which because it's no longer possible i had to kind of basically invest all of my desire in a way into the interest you know find everything interesting somehow and yeah re-enchant everything otherwise it would have only been depression like because to simply remove something that had such a significant role whether it's a person or a drug or whatever it just would create a kind of depression it would just kill your desire so the only other option, it seemed to me, would be to re-desire everything. Everything but that thing. 
Because <laughs> it did, I like that that word kind of when you use the word meaning, because obviously like meaning and speech and language are kind of aligned. And then addiction, it's like addiction, like not speaking, not. So I don't know if it's like it's symbolizing, there's an element of like symbolizing that meaning or like bringing the meaning out into some like tangible kind of like, yeah, symbolized and digestible thing. Yeah, it's a kind of distributive question. And I think that the, the whole structure of the society that we're living in invites us to do distribution badly. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to have to rebuild your whole way of looking at the world to fix that. And I think uh, very often people get romantic about the East because when or romantic about ancient cultures because they imagine that those cultures did have that kind of balance and balance is a concept that we associate with ancient thought and with eastern thought uh, that and finding meaning in the little things is something that we project onto and and really notice when we look at the buddhists or mm-hmm. or uh, the taoists or and so on it's interesting that i put like the the west projects this sort of cosmic balance on eastern religions you know that like it's like it's really utilitarian kind of like if we just get to this even point, it'll all be great. It's like the union thing, you know, like the cosmic balance versus like absolute chaos of Freud or whatever. Um, so something that you that I think you said earlier that really made me think about something. I can't remember what it is. I'm not very good at holding thoughts for like, oh, yes. Sorry. Yes. Obviously, there is a big thing, here, which is like God is dead, you know, so obviously that whoever god was possessed some kind of transcendent meaning for a lot of people and like a lot of libidinal investment and everything um but god isn't dead at the same time like we still have the same mode of religiosity but like god is distributed into like different things you know it's still we we haven't rid ourselves of god like we're still like religious believers um you know and you don't have to be afraid of believe in ghosts to be afraid of them. I think, I don't know who said that, but like, that's another thing, you know, this, it's still, we're still like marked by that desire to have some kind of um, thing, object, person, hold this transcendent meaning for us. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the Walter Benjamin essay, um, Capitalism as Religion, which is a kind of fragment, I mean, it's very, you know, esoteric in certain ways, but one of the kind of um, suggestions, it seems to me at least, which is in the fragment is, this idea that actually, you know, capitalism is not about work. It's actually a kind of festival that's got wildly out of control. And that actually what we're trapped in is a kind of perpetual cycle of the most um, extreme form of um, um, celebration, right, of, of the machine. And, and, and he says that capitalism is like the first religion without redemption in a certain mm-hmm. way. Yes. Like it's, yeah. it's it, you know, that we're kind of trapped on this hellish sort of merry-go-round, basically, Um that, that in a way sort of has churned God into it. Like God mm-hmm. is sort of like mashed up in the festival and in the machine. Um, but there's no kind of salvation. There's no way out. There's no kind of lit up. And I think that's very interesting if you compare it to kind of usual, you know, orthodox Marxist ideas of, of labor and, you know, free time and, and, you know, communism is free time and nothing else and that kind of thing. Um, to suggest instead that it's capitalism that's the festival. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I, I definitely feel like, you know, we were talking a bit like about Baudrillard and people like that before about like sacrifice and how the trouble is there's no, there's no, there, there's like so much sacrifice and capital, but it's all within capital. It, it's yeah. like, it, there's no celebration of this, of the pointless sacrifice. There's so yeah. much pointless sacrifice. If we think of how many empty houses there are in London or whatever, or how many like, you know, we're talking about the Olympics or training to be like a, famous musician in the last episode it's like the sacrifices all those people who trained and trained and trained you know and only got out of it the pleasure of having had the opportunity to do that you know there's all these stories always about um premier league football in the uk and how many young men like go through all the academies and they they get noticed so there's huge sacrifice but it is never you know placed on this big bonfire for us to all witness we will have to hide the sacrifice rather than acknowledge it but it's yeah it's all in there just churned in. Yeah. So we are now over the hour mark. So I think yes, we should, should probably wrap up. But do feel free, dear listener, to join us for the Patreon 
B-side episode that we are going to record next, where we'll talk a little bit about what we've been thinking about this week in a little bit more informal way. So thank you so much for listening and have a terrific rest of the day. Bye.